This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, stories and wisdom from Joe Duffy, who spent decades with the Mayo Clinic treating motor speech disorders. Speech is a mirror of our thinking and our emotions, but it's also a mirror of the stability of our brain and nervous system and the circuitry that's involved in producing those thoughts and emotions. He shares stories of the experiences that stuck with him, from surprising neurological conditions to functional speech disorders. And he dissects what we can learn from these memorable patients and the way they spoke. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Get unlimited access to ASHA's catalog of CE courses for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learningpass. Joining us is SLP Joe Duffy. Joe is Professor Emeritus in Speech Pathology in the Department of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic. His career has centered on motor speech disorders, and although he is now recently retired from the Mayo Clinic, he stays active in the world of motor speech disorders and continues to do clinically oriented research. He joins the podcast for a conversation on differential diagnosis, the role of SLPs, and his career. He says all motor speech disorders, by definition, are neurological disorders. I asked him about how these disorders may interfere or change the way people communicate. Motor speech disorders are really a a very broad category of neurologic disturbances that can be broken down into two major subcategories. One are the dysarthrias, and the other is apraxia of speech. There are many types of dysarthrias. Typically, apraxia of speech has been considered a singular disorder, but there may be subtypes of apraxia of speech as well. And these are disorders that localize to different areas of the brain. So recognizing the specific type of motor speech disorder can help to localize neurologic disease. I want to bring up a story that you told to the ASHA leader uh, a few years ago. It was in an article titled, He Struggled with Walking and Talking, But Why? And in that article, you tell the story of a patient who you called Mark, who had deteriorating speech imbalance. Yeah, well, this is um, a fairly dramatic case, uh, but it makes some very important points, I think. This was a man who I saw a number of years ago, and a neurology colleague called me uh, to tell me about him and said that he had presented with gait difficulty and speech problems. And his neurologic exam was confusing because the gait difficulty he had didn't quite fit a recognizable neurological pattern. And his speech problem was somewhat unusual. And the neurologist was wondering if this might be a functional speech disorder, meaning a, a disorder that is is more tied to psychological influences than structural lesions in the brain. But he really wasn't sure. And uh, so he wanted my opinion about whether this problem was a reflection of an organic neurologic condition or something else. That day, I, I saw the patient and it was quite clear to me that he had an ataxic dysarthria, which is characterized by irregular breakdowns of articulation, some slowing of rate, and some poor control of pitch and loudness. And 
this fit quite well, I thought, with ataxic dysarthria. And because of that, I was able to state that this was strongly suggestive of a cerebellar condition of some kind. Of course, I couldn't say anything about what might be causing the problem, but I was fairly confident it was coming from the cerebellum or its connections within the brain. I discussed him with the neurologist in addition to writing my report, and the neurologist was then willing to pursue an aggressive workup to determine uh, whether or not this person had cerebellar disease. And the standard neurologic workup was essentially normal, including neuroimaging of the brain, which showed no structural lesions, no evidence of stroke or tumor in the brain. So he went on to do uh, more complete testing. And over the course of a week of testing, a uh, tumor in the patient's lower abdomen was discovered. And further assessment indicated that his neurological problems were most likely due to a perineoplastic process. And perineoplastic disease is really a remote effect of cancer. So some patients can develop cerebellar problems in response to a tumor elsewhere in the body, even when the initial tumor has not yet declared itself. And in fact, that's what was going on in this case. And it ultimately led to successful treatment of the primary tumor, essentially a cure, but his cerebellar difficulties, including his speech difficulties, persisted as they typically do. This case, I I think, is a, a rather dramatic example of how speech difficulty can announce the presence of neurologic disease and how accurate diagnosis can help localize that disease and uh, maybe in some cases lead to a workup that identifies the underlying neurologic cause that sometimes is treatable. I often refer to this case as a good example of the importance of differential diagnosis among motor speech disorders and distinguishing neurologic motor speech disorders from other speech difficulties that might be confused with them. It's so interesting because we think of speech so often as the way that we share ideas and information, but here the speaker is sharing biological information through how they spoke. Exactly. Well put. Speech is a mirror of our thinking and our emotions, but it's also a mirror of the stability of our brain and nervous system and the circuitry that's involved in producing those thoughts and emotions. So it's a finely tuned mechanism that is sensitive to perturbations in the brain that affect the speech circuitry. The story you just told may be a little bit more of a rare example, but I understand when it comes to motor speech disorders, there are other examples that are more common where detecting a change in speech has led to another diagnosis. Yeah. You want another example? (laughs) Sure. This is conceivably something that a speech pathologist working in any hospital or outpatient setting could see a patient like this. 
I saw a man a number of years ago who had been admitted to the hospital because of speech difficulty. He had no other neurological problems. He did have a history of a prior stroke a few years prior to that, and he had a number of cardiac risk factors for stroke. So he was admitted to the hospital, and they did a CT scan, uh, which showed evidence of an old stroke, and he had actually had some speech difficulty related to that old stroke, uh, but had recovered from it. But it didn't show any evidence of any new stroke. And they kept him in the hospital overnight, and in the morning, uh, his speech was normal, and he had no other neurologic signs or symptoms, and he was discharged with a diagnosis of a probable transient ischemic attack or perhaps a small stroke. A few days later, he was seen for follow-up by an internist, and the patient was still complaining of, of speech difficulty, and the internist thought he was having some speech difficulty. And so he referred the patient to me for speech therapy, and the consult requested something like recent stroke speech therapy. So I saw this gentleman, and when we began to talk, I thought his speech was entirely normal. And I thought if he did have a stroke and a mild dysarthria, he's perhaps fully recovered, although the patient thought he was still having periodic speech difficulty. But as I listened to him a little bit more and did some more formal testing, his speech did show some abnormalities, and he developed some difficulty with articulation. It became imprecise, and he became somewhat hypernasal and had some increased distortions of sounds over the few minutes I did some formal testing. And based on his pattern of speech difficulty, I said, this is clearly a dysarthria. And because it was normal and has gone to noticeably abnormal in a very short period of time, um, I wonder if this man might have myasthenia gravis. I had him rest for a few minutes, his speech normalized, and then I had him talk continuously for another minute and his speech deteriorated again. That allowed me to be pretty confident that in all likelihood, this person had myasthenia gravis. Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disease that affects the neuromuscular junction. When we move muscle, it requires stimulation from a nerve. And in this disease, the release of acetylcholine, which is a transmitter substance from the neuron to muscle, is defective. And people with myasthenia gravis typically will develop weakness and often recover with rest. Now, myasthenia gravis doesn't often begin with speech difficulty, although it's known that it can. It's very often associated with some drooping of the eyelids and weakness elsewhere in the body. That's what myasthenia gravis is, and it's a treatable disease. Having recognized that, I called his internist. I said, you know, I, I'm highly suspicious the speech problem is a reflection of myasthenia gravis. And I offered to contact a neurology colleague who saw the patient that afternoon and then ordered some tests. And within a day, the diagnosis of myasthenia gravis was confirmed. 
and the man was then successfully treated for myasthenia gravis. This uh, illustrates a bunch of things. Number one, the physicians who saw him in the hospital either didn't listen very carefully to his speech, or if they heard speech abnormalities, they didn't know what it meant. And the diagnosis they made was very reasonable given the patient's history. He had had a stroke. He had risk factors for stroke. He came into the hospital late at night, which is when people with stroke often present and not people with myasthenia gravis. And he was normal the next day in discharge with a diagnosis of probable stroke. But, you know, I don't know what would have happened if he saw a speech pathologist while he was in the hospital. It might have been recognized then. The meaning of his speech difficulty wasn't recognized by his internist, but it was recognized by a speech pathologist who has experience with motor speech disorder. So it's another example of speech being the first sign of a neurological disease, a good example of the pattern of speech difficulty localizing the neurologic disease. And I guess another, uh, uh, an even more dramatic example of how that recognition led to successful medical treatment. This man did not need speech therapy. And in fact, speech therapy is pretty much contraindicated in myasthenia gravis, but he was treated very effectively from a medical standpoint. I can only assume that time is of the essence. And so treating speech may have delayed the needed care in this situation. Yes, yes. And myasthenia gravis can be fatal in some cases. It's not something that should be left untreated. Yeah. This is a testament to the power of listening, right? And what SLPs can learn through listening. When we talk about the ability for an SLP to listen, especially with motor speech disorders, you spent years honing these skills, acknowledging there's no shortcut for success here. What can clinicians do to turn their mind into that of a diagnostician? Yeah, that's a great and important question. I, I think I think it has to begin during graduate training. I have some strong feelings about this, but I think that uh, graduate students need to spend hours upon hours listening to abnormal speech and learning the language that describes abnormal speech characteristics and learn to be reliable with the judgments made by experienced clinicians. It doesn't mean that by the time you get your your master's degree or you get certified, you will be an expert or highly skilled at differential diagnosis, but you will at least have had some exposure to multiple motor speech disorders and have learned the language for describing them and have made a start to recognizing these abnormal patterns and what they mean relative to localization. So I I really think that this has to begin in in graduate school training. You know, I often say to people, after all, we are speech language pathologists. We need to be trained to listen well and to more than just features of language, meaning vocabulary and grammar and syntax and phonology. We need to listen for patterns of abnormal motor speech production. 
And then, you know, once one gets into clinical practice, one has to hone those skills and see lots of patients. But the principles should be learned during training. And then during clinical practice, hopefully with colleagues who have more experience, who can mentor your listening skills and check reliability and so on. You have to, with experience, transition from kind of making a list of the speech abnormalities to recognizing the patterns of abnormality. And and once you get to a point where you recognize patterns, then you're getting good at differential diagnosis. So practice, practice, practice. It's why we call it clinical practice. And and we've talked about a couple of more rare examples, but there's also ALS and others as well that you can spot. Yes, very good point. And it's important to recognize that, you know, about, oh, in the neighborhood of 20% of people who have ALS have their initial symptoms in the bulbar, meaning speech muscles, a change in speech in 20% or so of people with ALS is the first indication of the disease's presence. And I've seen many patients when they come to the clinic who have a primary complaint of speech difficulty in whom we recognize the fairly typical mixed flaccid spastic dysarthria of ALS. And while we cannot say that ALS is the cause, we can say that a mixed flaccid spastic dysarthria is associated with upper and lower motor neuron involvement affecting the speech muscles. And a neurologist knows that upper and lower motor neuron problems raise red flags for a diagnosis of ALS. ALS is a much more common example than the two cases I just I just reviewed, but that's a, a that's a very good example. And there are there are many others. There are known cerebellar diseases that can announce themselves as ataxic dysarthria, and a number of other neurodegenerative diseases that affect motor functions that can begin with speech difficulty, or can have speech difficulty associated with them in which case the speech diagnosis may help to confirm a neurologist's suspicion that a particular disease may be present. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the ASHA Learning Pass. Earn ASHA CEUs and stay current with the ASHA Learning Pass by accessing ASHA's comprehensive catalog of CE courses for one convenient annual fee. Choose from more than 700 courses on topics important to you. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. I mentioned earlier that you've formally retired from the Mayo Clinic, and uh, I wanted to take a chance to reflect for a moment. So you've been at the forefront of motor speech research for decades, and I'm just wondering how you've seen it change and where you think it's headed. Yeah, it's changed, I think, in a number of ways. I think people do recognize the importance of distinguishing among motor speech disorders much more readily today than 30 or 40 years ago. Although my mentor, Arnie Aronson, speech pathologist, maybe three decades ago, said that the importance of differential diagnosis has been a well-kept secret. 
And in some ways, it still is because medicine hasn't fully recognized this. And speech pathology has maybe not recognized it well enough to better train people in that skill. And I'm not implying that that's the the foremost skill that we need to have because treatment is our bread and butter and probably the most important thing that we do. But we are diagnosticians as well as therapists. But I do think we made progress there. We've made tremendous progress in understanding the underpinnings of motor speech disorders. Acoustic and physiologic analyses have really taught us a lot of things that we can't know just on the basis of of listening. We understand how these acoustic and physiologic measures correlate with what we hear with our ears. So we've made good progress there. And we've made, I think, good progress in treatment, certainly in the area of alternative and augmentative communication for people with motor speech disorders. The progress has been astronomical. And I think we've always struggled with measuring something like the intelligibility of speech, because to do so in a quantitative way has always been very, very time-consuming. And day-to-day clinicians don't have time to do those things. But we're on the verge now with advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning of maybe having a quantitative index of intelligibility done rapidly and automatically. We're we're not there yet, but we're on the verge of being there. And I do think that, that the contribution of speech pathology to neurology and the understanding of motor diseases is recognized by neurology more now than it has been in the past. We've made good progress. You told a couple of stories from your time as a clinician that stuck with you earlier in this episode. I wonder if there were any others you might want to share. Yeah. The general mantra is that you may be able to identify a motor speech disorder, but that does not diagnose the specific neurologic disease. And and that's a good rule, and we should accept that as a broad statement. But there are cases in which the speech diagnosis is the neurological diagnosis. For example, a problem we've been studying for a number of years now, primary progressive apraxia of speech, is a neurodegenerative speech disorder that by definition initially manifests as apraxia of speech. People can have this condition for sometimes several years before they have evidence of any other neurological problem. That disorder is an example of the speech diagnosis, primary progressive apraxia of speech, being equivalent to the neurological diagnosis for a period of time. And we've learned enough about it to know that as it progresses, it then earns, usually earns, a more specific neurologic diagnosis, which most often is progressive supranuclear palsy or cortical basal syndrome. But it is an example of where the speech diagnosis is the neurologic diagnosis. Another good example is spasmodic dysphonia, which it, its neurological form is 
reflexolaryngeal dystonia. And uh, so a diagnosis of spasmodic dysphonia or laryngeal dystonia is the neurological and often ENT diagnosis of the problem. And recognizing it is very important because spasmodic dysphonia is treatable. It's not curable, but it is treatable. Distinguishing it from other motor speech disorders is quite important because it points to treatment. Well, you know, I did want to ask you about something that you referenced a little earlier. You know, we spoke with one of your longtime Mayo Clinic colleagues earlier this year on the podcast, Edie Strand. She suggested I might ask you about functional speech disorders. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with functional speech disorders? Yeah, functional speech disorders are increasingly recognized and often can be um, difficult to distinguish from organic, structurally-based neurologic motor speech disorders. For example, the first case we talked about, the man who had the paraneoplastic syndrome, the neurologist wondered if his problems were functional, meaning not due to any lesion in brain circuitry. So that was on the differential diagnosis list. But people with functional speech disorders can manifest those difficulties in many ways. They can have abnormalities of voice, abnormalities of articulation, abnormalities of fluency, abnormalities of prosody. And we know, for example, that stuttering can be neurologic. It's well documented. But adult onset stuttering can also be functional and not a reflection of structural neurologic disease. There is a well-known neurologic syndrome called foreign accent syndrome that is well-documented as a, a reflection of, of neurologic etiology, but it can also be functional. And But patients with functional speech disorders have clues in their pattern of speaking that can distinguish them from the more traditionally recognized motor speech disorders. So, for example, their pattern of speaking is often more inconsistent than one would expect in a neurologic motor speech disorder. There may be excessive effort during speech that is not commonly seen in other structurally based neurologic motor speech disorders. And People with functional speech disorders often, not always, but often respond rapidly and dramatically to symptomatic speech therapy. In our practice, almost half of patients we see with functional speech disorders, we could achieve dramatic improvement and even resolution of the speech problem within a session or two of speech therapy. And that obviously doesn't happen with structurally based neurologic disease and is obviously very beneficial to the patient and very often can set the direction of a medical workup in an entirely different direction than it was going. That is going down a line that's looking for organic structural disease than not doing that. 
and sometimes pursuing psychological or psychiatric evaluation, although not always. Um, sometimes approaching the problem symptomatically with appropriate counseling that allows the patient to understand the probable or possible mechanisms that explain why they develop this functional problem. They're a fascinating group of problems that when we talk about them with patients, we say this is a brain disorder. That is, you're not talking normally, and that's a reflection of how your brain is operating to produce speech. But we're not worried about some structural problem that would lead us to conclude that this is a problem that cannot be resolved. And sometimes there are major life events or psychosocial factors that are readily apparent and likely linked to the development of the problem, and sometimes there are not. But the problem may nonetheless be very responsive to treatment. To recognize functional speech disorders, you have to know the rules of the game relative to patterns of motor speech disorders. So one has to recognize what falls within the boundary of traditional motor speech disorders before you can recognize something that doesn't. Functional speech disorders fall outside of that box of organic structural motor speech disorders, but it lies near that box. You have to know what falls within it before you can readily recognize something that doesn't. I'm happy you shared an example of how you speak with patients with functional speech disorders, because I have to imagine that you have to choose some of those words very carefully. Absolutely. And probably for functional speech disorders, more than any other speech disorder, treatment begins with the diagnostic explanation. And it's extremely important that that be handled with care and sensitivity to the patient's predicament. They have often pejoratively been told that the problem is all in their head or that there is nothing wrong. And many physicians admittedly do not enjoy seeing patients with functional disorders. So, uh, you know, the patient often by the time we see them has had a journey of frustrating experiences with the medical system. So how you explain the nature of a functional problem is is extremely important, and it varies from patient to patient depending on the nature of their difficulty, the risk factors that they have, their level of sophistication, and so on. But if you're going to be successful treating the symptoms of functional speech disorders, the first step is to have the patient understand and accept that this is a problem that is modifiable with hard work on their part. And then when you work with them, they get full credit for working hard to make the improvements that they very often make. So yeah, you're absolutely right. The explanation is crucial to treatment. I mean, it's important to any of the treatment we do for any problem, but for functional speech disorders, probably more important than uh, for many others. Joe Duffy, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
For more on functional disorders, look to the current issue of the Asher Leader magazine for a cover story by Joe Duffy. In it, he tells the story of Rose, whose case baffled specialists for years. He shares what happened when she came to see him and how it led to a diagnosis and healing. Read it online at leader.pubs.asher.org. Or find a link to the article and other resources on the blog post for this podcast episode at on.asher.org slash podcast. Asha Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the Asha Leader Magazine. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Asha Learning Pass. Access more than 1,350 hours of Asha CE content for one annual fee. Learn more at asha.org slash learning pass. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices.